around to spoil Christmas, and that's my job here today. Um, carols by candlelight and all sorts of different things happen around about this time and there's a sort of interest in Jesus or the story of the Bible an interest in the birth of Jesus somehow disconnected from uh, the rest of uh, the story in some ways although the hymns and the songs that we sing blend things together but sometimes also conflate things push together things that actually don't make sense uh, together or wrap together a whole bunch of different things from the um, gospel stories and so, look, I've got a very short passage here today to speak from. Damo next week's going to talk about the, um, the shepherds and the angels. But Luke chapter 2. And what I want you to notice that there at, the, at the very start is that it's a very short account, isn't it? Very short account of what happens at Jesus' birth. If you went to Matthew's gospel, you'd find it even shorter. Just um, Mary gave birth. Um, I've probably given the game away right there. But uh, anyway... Forget about that for the moment. But here in Luke's gospel, we have the longest section talking about Jesus' birth. And there's a few, I guess, mythologies or ideas that have sprung up for us over time. And so my role today will be... I want you to look at the beginning of, um, of the uh, chapter here and uh, notice things that actually are important to Luke, what he wants to mention in connection to this whole episode. And then we're going to dispel some of the other aspects as well. I actually sent an article to the leadership team um, a couple of weeks ago because everyone's asking, but what about the innkeeper and, you know, getting the kids up and, you know, and Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem and knocking on all the doors and there's no room left for them and they go over there as an angry innkeeper going out in the stable and, and all that. And so that's a picture sometimes we have of the, the birth of Jesus. But let's, before we get to that, let's just look at a couple of other things that come up here. This is in the days of Caesar Augustus. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Philippians and I talked about the gospel of Caesar. That gospel of Caesar is that Caesar Augustus, he is the Lord, he is the saviour. He has been provided by providence to come into the world at a particular time and inaugurate a new age. And instead what we have here is the beginnings of something different, do we not? That in the days of the great Caesar Augustus, he issues a decree that a census to be taken of the entire Roman world because taxation is a big deal for, um, for the rulers of the world. Note that this was also the Roman world under the um, oppressive reign of Rome. And also the first census is there under Quirinius, governor of Syria. Again, locating at a point in history. Um, Syria, by the way, was one of the, um, previously, one of the empires or rulers that went through um, Judea and Israel and uh, conquered them. As Israel waited after the Babylonian exile to be freed, to be freed from exile, to be brought and restored back, and that a king on the throne of David would be um, put on the throne and would actually uh, renew Israel. Instead, a whole series of empires went through. Syria, Greece, Syria, Rome, Egypt, and um, it was all bad news. So Quirinius is yet another puppet uh, ruler, governor, a client state of Syria. So during this time, we see here that um, a census is made. Everyone has to go back to their town of origin to uh, register for this tax. And so Joseph, who comes from Bethlehem, leaves the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, 
the town of David. So we've begun with Caesar Augustus, the great king, the client king, Quirinius, or governor, and then the mention of David. Not just a little aside, but part of the Old Testament promise that a son of David is going to come to the throne. So we're, we've read all the prophecies and the songs of Elizabeth and the prayer of Mary and everything, recalling all those Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah and other places, that God is going to come and overthrow the current order of things. He will restore Israel the poor will be lifted up, the rich will be knocked down and uh, instead there's going to be a new order of things. The kingdom of God is coming. That is a message that is about to be proclaimed by John the Baptist and then Jesus. So here in Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, so ramping up the expectation here, and he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to marry him and was expecting a child. We all know this. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Did you notice those words? So they go to Bethlehem, Nazareth to Bethlehem, and then while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. There isn't the drama that sometimes you'll see in, you know, made by Hollywood nativity uh, stories or even the way that we tell it sometimes Joseph and Mary on the dangerous uh, road to um, to Bethlehem get there just in time Mary's about to give birth quick we need to give birth and we're going to find somewhere to live they're already there the time to come time to give birth uh, has come but they're already there in Bethlehem this is where we start to sort of pull the threads a little bit on some of the traditional stuff that we, we sing, some of the stuff that we imagine as we read this and the nativity displays and all those sorts of things as well, what's actually going on here. And so there we are. There's a, there's a fairly uh, traditional um, traditional uh, picture there of nativity. There's an angel standing in the back. A lot of what we look at is fairly kind of, I don't know, it's not just about being natural versus supernatural. It just becomes kind of magical. And there's a sense when we read the story, it starts to actually have a distance between us and what's happening. It sort of becomes this magical, enclosed little story, put it in a little glass dome, and one of those things that you sort of shake up in the snow, separate from the rest of us, not very real, radioactive baby in the middle, glowing, and it's just not very connected to us anymore is it and yet when we read what we see in scripture here what we read in luke's gospel his announcement of this coming king is very gritty and grounded in reality but do we care should we care maybe we should just sort of keep what we have here and um you know add all the additional things not just santa stuff but anything else i, I thought i'll have a go damo's always telling me i should get into ai so i had my first shot at ai art and so there, why not add some Star Wars figures into there as well? Um, it was a long time ago, 2000 years, but not in the galaxy far, far away. Or Lord of the Rings. Why not just keep adding made-up stuff into the story? If we don't want to do that, and we just want to see what's there in Scripture, see what the priorities are there, see what the thing is that we're trying to be shown, something which is connected with the story that we've seen in the Old Testament and the expectations of Israel and hope for the whole world. 
So we see that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no... Well, what does your Bible say? If you're reading the NIV, I'm having to go at the old NIV again, and the King James and that, you would have seen something closer to this. And she brought forth her firstborn son wrapped them in swaddling clothes and laid them in a manger because there's no room for them in the inn. All right, what's going on there? So what we're going to start off with today, it's just a, a moment of, of education, a shorter service today, to say Jesus wasn't born in a stable because he got kicked out of an inn. Where has that idea come from? Well, it comes from three different things. One, a kind of traditional elaboration on the idea of the manger. Another is the ignorance of what first century Palestinian culture looks like. And then also issues about grammar and reading as well. So first of all, just a quick thing about the elaboration. In Isaiah 1 to 3, a kind of messianic, you might say, rereading of this says, the ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's manger. Word manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. And so the mention of manger in Luke's story suggested animals. And so it led medieval illustrators to depict the ox and the ass. Ass, sorry. Ass! Recognising the baby Jesus. So natural setting is a stable, because isn't that where you keep animals? Well, in some parts of the world it is, but not necessarily. Okay. So, what we have here instead is a translation problem, again, which is fixed up if you've got a newer NIV, because what it will tell you there is guest house. So the heart of the matter really is the meaning of that word, cataluma, uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. So the older versions we just said translate that as an inn. And there is some actual warrant for this from the Old Testament uh, translation, Greek translation of the Old Testament Septuagint. Um, sometimes use the word for a place of hospitality, like in Exodus 4. Remember that great story where Moses is sort of travelling along and then God is going to kill him? Do you remember that story? Well, you should look that up. That's pretty freaky. Um, and where that takes place is near uh, Cataluma, a kind of lodging of some kind. It's not specified. And then also same thing in First Samuel 9.22, for those who are jotting down notes. But look, the idea of the word itself is very general and the idea comes from actually unloosing or untying your horse. So where do you do that? Well, you do that as a um, uh, place of lodging. But words, their, their meaning, if you like, is determined by their actual use. So actually what you find is that rather than an inn, you find it actually meaning something like the new NIV and other translations now say it's like a guest room. So there's our word, Cataluma, a spare or upper room in a private house from a village where travellers received hospitality and where no payment was expected. Private lodging, which is distinct from that as a public inn, 
which is caravanserae or calm. Okay. And then you have the other word in the 5th century Greek, and then is used for the shelter of strangers, Pandokian, all receiving, had a common refectory and dormitory, most of the rooms allotted to individual travellers. Two different words. That's a word that's certainly available um, for Luke to use if he wants to talk about an inn. And in fact, when you look at uh, Luke chapter 10, which is the um, parable of the uh, Good Samaritan, where the man falls among thieves and the Good Samaritan comes along and, and picks him up, puts him on his donkey and takes him to the Pandokian, the inn. All right, so what's going on here? Why do we imagine this story? Because it kind of fits, I guess, Western Europe, um, an idea of what we think this would look like, or what it is in the experience of Western Europe, at least. It's the idea that you would actually go and travel, you're on your own, and you need to find, you know, your, your first century equivalent of an Airbnb, have your own special place to stay. But remember that um, Joseph and Mary are returning to the place they came from. So the first thing I want you to see is that this is what a first century house looks like. And don't understand that you basically you've got a great big room. There is a guest room, a Catalina, we say, and then a kind of stable which is part of the house and connected actually with the rest of the house where the animals are brought in at night. And there you've got your mangers to, uh, for feeding and so forth. But that's pretty much a Palestinian peasant household in the first century. There's no ensuite, I note, so I'm not interested in buying it. It's very basic, isn't it? It helps you make sense of some of the verses that are in the Bible, doesn't it? Have you ever read this before and wondered, what on earth is Jesus thinking? Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. Now, if you put, uh, you go in your bedroom and turn the light on, there might be a bit of a crack of light comes out of the bedroom window and someone says, turn the light off and go to sleep. But you know that everyone in the house is not going to see your light unless you live in that, where everyone is there basically all together. Luke's account of Jesus healing a woman on the Sabbath and he says, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the manger and lead it out to give it water? And interestingly, um, one translation or a manuscript later on thought that that might not be clear to people outside of Israel and uh, added in the words, lead it out of the house to give it water. But again, when you see what the house actually looks like, you think, okay, I understand what's going on here. All right. So, why does this matter? Well, firstly, don't we just want to get things right and understand things well? Don't we just want to see what Scripture is saying and not add our own cultural sort of prejudices uh, into all of this? So one of the main things here, I think, though, is that we don't understand the... the um, historical and social context, the culture of the time. If you go anywhere in the Middle East, and uh, Kenneth Bailey, who was a famous um, 
was still alive, so, so it was. A uh, famous student of Palestinian culture and lived in the Middle East for many, many years, he's basically said, you can't even imagine Joseph showing up in the town of his birth with his family, a whole bunch of other people have come as well, haven't they? Because they need to be in the place of their birth to register for the tax. If Joseph can recite his line of descent, Joseph, son of da 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 like we just see there at the beginning of Matthew's uh, Gospel, um, he's going to be welcomed. And you know that Middle Eastern hospitality is not just going to say, oh, we're all full here, and, you know, get lost, is that they will sacrifice in order to actually show hospitality to others. Okay. He's a member of the House of David. That means something in this culture and in the story of the Bible. So he's going to be welcome basically wherever he goes. So what's actually happening? Well, there they are in a single room house with an area that guests can stay in as well. But the issue is there's so many people here and there's no room left in the guest room. And when eventually the time comes for Mary to give birth, there's no room in the guest room to basically have this happen. They need to take her somewhere where this can happen. And it is in a family living area, straw on the ground, animals are around, so put them in the room next door. But here she is in this room giving birth. But there's none of this kind of long drama that we sort of see in the way that we sometimes tell the story as though Mary is, you know, desperate to give birth, can't find anywhere, nobody cares. Okay? So the story is not what we sometimes make it. And can you imagine, it is, po you know, it is possible that, that the house is built into a cave or something like that, but can you imagine that when we get to the, I'm not going to steal too much thunder or anything, Damon, but when the shepherds come next week to see the Messiah who has been born, seeing him in a kind of a stable off on their own and then going, wow, that's great. Okay, we're off then and we'll just leave the Messiah who's just been born in this little stable. They're poor, sure, but they're not going to want their king, the king who has just been born, to be sitting there out on their own in a stable. There's a, um, a, a German academic um, who went and said, no, no, I, I can't understand how this could all work because um, when he went to, his, uh, went to Israel and stayed in there, he said, the one thing you can't get is any privacy. You just want privacy. And sometimes it was all I could do was to run and flee the village that I was staying in and go and be on my, be on my own just so I could think. That's well, a very Western kind of thing in the Middle Eastern culture, to be on your own, to be off doing your own thing is just counterintuitive. You want to actually be together with your people, with your family, connected and talking and singing and all those sorts of things. So, look, there is no way in the world even from the standpoint of analysing uh, Middle Eastern culture, that we can imagine this actually happening um, to Jesus. But the most important thing, it's just not there in the text. It's not there in Matthew. So what do we actually do with all of this? Firstly, join me in my crusade to ruin Christmas. Um, no, don't do that. So it's not about ruining Christmas, the coming of the Messiah, but what it is about 
is grounding it in history, grounding it in the grittiness of the first century. And Damo will talk more about how that relates to the shepherds and so forth next, next week. But to think, connect this story with what has gone before. Okay. Connect the story with the promise and the hope of Israel, that there is, in fact, going to be salvation where God restores his people who return to him, that he will call the nations under the lordship of Israel's Messiah, the world's true Lord, that a new community will be built out of Israel and the nations together under this one Messiah, filled by the Spirit, forgiven of their sins, and with the hope of the renewing of creation, of the new creation already beginning in their midst. This is the, the hope that's presented in the Old Testament. This is the hope which is repeated by Elizabeth and Mary as they see that uh, one of them is about to give birth to a prophet who is going to bring Israel back from exile, prepare the way of the Lord, a voice crying in the wilderness, to return from exile. And then the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God, the true king from the line of David. And our Bible studies have been looking at that in Romans, so the beginning of the gospel is very much that. The gospel is Jesus, descended from David, the Christ, appointed the son of God in power through the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ, the Lord. This is the story of the Messiah. It isn't even, as a, even as a Trinitarian um, theologian, this is not a story about a God baby, you might say. And all the stuff that happens in the carols and the glowing and all those sorts of different things, it is about the coming of the Messiah. Now it is God, the Word made flesh, who becomes the Messiah. But that's not the point of this story at this point. And we dare not just keep reading back our other concerns and miss what's actually going on. It's a point I suppose I keep hammering over um, over the last few months. But we don't read the story well if we don't read the story. There's no point pushing stuff into the scriptures just to fit the things that make us feel good. You probably can't answer this now. Um, probably next week after Damo's uh, talked about uh, what this means for, uh, for the shepherds and others. But what is the kind of Messiah or Lord that we worship? Is it the kind of the otherworldly, strange, not really one of us, um, the divine baby who we worship as God in the manger and the shepherds come to worship God as a baby in the manger? Or is it actually what's presented to us in scripture? That actually here is a child born of a virgin. Here is a new creation. Here is the son of David. Here is the promised king. Here is the salvation that God is going to bring through the nation of Israel. It's a gritty story that connects with what comes after it as well. Not just the prophecies, but what comes after. A man making his way through all of Israel, preaching the good news and then becoming the lowest of the low, someone condemned on a Roman cross. The whole story is pretty gritty. So sing the hymns, sing the carols, but also think about what you're seeing when you're seeing it. Is this really reflecting what I'm reading here in the Bible? Or is it a kind of made-up um, 
fantastical version. I'd like to worship the latter, to be honest. I want to worship a God who has become human and has become one of us. And he's tempted in all points like we were, as it says in 1 Corinthians, that he knows, like it says in Hebrews, what it is to actually learn and grow and suffer. That's the way that the New Testament presents the story of Jesus. But it all begins here. And if we disconnect this story at a time, actually, when people are interested and we create a kind of fantasy, a magical version of the story of Jesus, are we actually presenting to them a part of the gospel, of the announcement of the king? That's where I'll leave it. I've ruined Christmas and Damo, you can redeem Christmas next week. Yes. Thank you very much. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of year as we consider the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider the coming of the Son of David, descended from David. We thank you that you came into our world at a time, in the fullness of time, in a troubled place where men exalted themselves as gods, as lords over your world, oppressed people, wrung them for, uh, for money, sent them in very inconvenient trips to other parts of their country just in order to uh, please the uh, pseudo-divine will of Caesar. We thank that you came into history. You didn't come into the world in a magical way, but a, both ordinary and extraordinary, born of a virgin, but also very ordinary in an ordinary family in Bethlehem, in the city of David. As we think about the salvation that you have brought, we see how it's connected to everything that you promised in the scriptures in the Old Testament, in the prophets. We see how as this came to light, Mary, Elizabeth and others celebrated with great joy the salvation which was to come. Salvation which wasn't restricted just to human hearts or to the idea of going to heaven after we die, but rather instead that salvation was comprehensive over all of our lives. That the salvation which comes to forgive our sins and to renew our life and to be filled with your spirit is one which changes and transforms your world. As we think about that first coming, we also, in recognition of your life and teaching, of your death on a cross and rising from the dead, Lord Jesus. We thank you that your promise is to return, that your promise is to appear. Your promise is the second advent. So as the first advent behind us, we now look forward and learn to model our lives both on the faith of these people here we look forward to your second advent, your coming then. Help us live with anticipation to live in light of your kingdom and to live in anticipation in the waiting for the appearance of the final manifestation of your kingdom. 
Lord. Give us faith, hope and love during this time, during this season and help us to share the gospel as it is extraordinary and ordinary, supernatural and natural, but hardly magical and distant from the realities of this world. Help us to be faithful to speaking your word truthfully and faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.